Support for this podcast comes from the Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise at the FAU College of Business. The Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise supports the vision and strategic plan of the College of Business to advance thought leadership in business. The center supports chaired professorships and research, educational programs for faculty members and students, distinguished visiting faculty, along with a lecture series and other educational programs focused on the principles of free enterprise and how those principles affect growth and prosperity. Learn more at business.fau.edu forward slash Phil Smith. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Mary Anastasia O'Grady from the Wall Street Journal. She has a great deal of expertise and uh, experience writing about the Americas in her column in the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to Florida Atlantic University. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Let me first say by how long have you been studying the Americas in the social and economic and political scene? Well, I started at the Journal in 1995, which makes it 24 years in August. Um, and before that, I lived in Mexico. So um, let's round it off to a quarter century. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's great. So we're pleased to have you come here today and, and talk with our students and also to sit here for this podcast. So we thank you for that. One of the big debates that we have going on in, in the United States right now is this debate about the relative merits of capitalism and socialism. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your vantage point teaches you about some aspects of this and the experience in the Americas? Well, I think one of the important things for Americans to understand is that you know, if you look at, for example, the um, catastrophe that is Venezuela right now, no one started out saying, you know, we want this pure, unadulterated socialism, which is basically communism in Venezuela. Um, what they started out asking for was more intervention by the state in order to make things what they called fair. And you know, we have to understand that socialism and all the ugly outcomes from socialism are never the what the voters um, are asking for in the beginning. They're asking for a lot of promises about making themselves richer, uh, as well off as that guy down the street that has more than them. Um, and then it's a series of policies that... Um, Give where individuals give up rights and the state takes on more of that power and eventually leads down this path of destruction, which, of course, uh, when uh, Frederick von Hayek, the famous Austrian economist, wrote about it, he called it the road to serfdom, precisely for that reason, because, you know, it's a road that you go down. It's not... It's not that you want to be there, but you're led down this path. And I think we see that in many of the economies in Latin America in the 20th century. Yeah. I think, too, what I see is that a lot of times people start uh, down that path talking about fairness and about equality of outcomes and how come that guy is so much better off uh, than we are. And when people talk about equality and fairness, one of the things that I think is is 
often overlooked is about the choices people make as individuals, and in our case in the university, uh, even what kind of things they're going to study and how they're going to behave and which occupation they're going to choose. And so there's a certain freedom of choice and a freedom to take action, to study certain courses or take certain majors uh, that is, is really important. There's a link between freedom at the individual level and economic freedom at the economy-wide level that is, that is really important. Yeah, I think that um, politicians, um, understanding human nature very well, uh, like to touch on the human emotion or, or, you know, as Catholics might say, the deadly sin of envy. Because, you know, everybody has that capacity in them. And if you start to uh, basically convince people that the reason why they don't have as much as they want to have is because someone else has it, um, and you live in a uh, in a in a country that has a political system that defines democracy as majority rules, and then you happen to have more poor people than you have rich people or even middle income people, you can uh, get the votes you want to say, you know what, I'm going to be the president. I'm going to be the guy in charge, and I'm going to take from the people who have less and and sorry I'm going to take from the 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 rich people and and give it to you so you stimulate this envy um as a way of gaining more control because what in order to do that the state has to get the control and that's why it leads down this path to authoritarianism and totalitarianism it's not like the control is given up with no cost it's given up with a cost that that the the state becomes um, the arbiter of all of these um, aspects. And by the way, it also increases corruption because the state has this sort of monopolistic or this absolute power over over people. And the really, you know, in, in some countries you haven't seen, obviously, go as far as it did in Venezuela. And there are reasons for that. Um, you know, in many countries, for example, let's look at Argentina. Argentina in the 2000s, was run by this family called the Kirchners, first Nestor Kirchner and then Christina Kirchner. But somehow the institutions held up just enough to keep it from t- tipping into a dictatorship. The jury is still out. You know, we have a, an elected president from the right who's not doing very well. But the point is that the institutions held up enough uh, to stop that from happening. And and in many of these countries, you don't have uh, strong institutions. Um, and that also is one of the big problems about generating this kind of anger and envy among people. Because if you don't have the institutions, it's very easy to knock them down, concentrate all the power in, in the hands of this guy who says he's going to, you know, make life fair. And in the end, you get Venezuela. I think that's an excellent point, or it's actually an excellent series of points. Can you elaborate for us just a little bit by what you mean by institutions? Because sometimes I think as professional economists and business people, quite often we understand that institutions uh, include a whole variety of things that are important for economic growth, uh, for investment, and all the rest. But can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, the formal institutions would be, uh, for example, in government, you would have three branches of government. Those are institutions. Um, you know, in some of these countries, you have an elect 
electoral body which oversees elections. That's a that's a fourth institution. It also includes things like um, the press. The press is a very important institution. It has to remain free. It has to remain independent. Um, in most, in many of these countries. Venezuela in particular, it did not. It became a, an organ of the government. Um, and, and all of those institutions. And then you have, you have private sector institutions like the, uh, the Bar Association or, uh, you know, the Rotary Club. Those are also institutions that add to make up, uh, civil society. Um, what's important to remember about these institutions is that they are all a reflection of the norms and values of the population. If they weren't, you could just go to Argentina and plop down, you know, the, 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 the replicas of the institutions that we have in the United States and voila, you would have the U.S. economy. But the institutions are only as strong and as um, capable as the culture of the society um you know, allows them to be or, or makes them. And so if you have, for example, a culture where, uh, say, profit making is not considered uh, justified, like you're not allowed to make a profit or somehow if someone makes a profit, that's an unjust um uh, uh, creation of that, that creation of wealth is somehow unjust. If that is the overriding uh, sense of values, that's a norm of the population. That's what they believe. Then you're never going to be able to defend private property rights from the court. So private property rights, if I can jump off on that a little bit too, is that those private property rights, the rule of law, enforceable contracts are also part of that institutional infrastructure that sometimes in the U.S. we may take for granted. The idea that we could go as individuals and work hard and save and perhaps buy a house and be comfortable in the knowledge that we own that house. And as we paid off the mortgage, no one else could come into our house and take it from us because we had property rights in that, and we had a rule of law to enforce it, and a police force, and a judicial system that would help us enforce those property rights. That also becomes important because if we're going to invest in things like an education or uh, work and build a business, there needs to be that assurance that we're suddenly not going to lose the value of that investment. So in my way of thinking and sort of uh, looking at things like these various indexes of economic freedom, those are also important uh, components. Is that right? Well, that's exactly right. And I, I think uh, one point I want to make, though, is you mentioned that, you know, we take that for granted. I think that we make a big mistake if we take any of these things for granted, because believe it or not, um, these institutions, even the United States, are constantly under attack, maybe often in insidious ways that we don't see. Um, this idea always drumming from the left about equality, um, meaning that if people have a lot and somebody else doesn't have anything, that's just the role of the state to redistribute that. Um, those, those values of, of, you know, what I earn, the fruits of my labor belong to me. That's not an automatic, um, an, that's not automatically so in our DNA or somehow enshrined. It's something we have to work to defend constantly. That's one point. And the second point is, um, you know, all of this talk about property rights and then being able to attract investment and, um, and, and basically create jobs and all that. This is all 
happens to also coincide with our interest in helping the poor. I mean, one of the reasons why the United States is filled with these incredible stories of people who start with nothing and experience this economic mobility in their lives is because of private property. You know, this person who starts with nothing, but is able to get a job, say, from somebody who put investment into a business because they hope to get a profit. So they hire this guy, he gets experience, and then he starts to move up the chain and so forth. We have that mobility because we have private property. So if we care about the poor, contrary to what some people want to promote as the idea of taking property from people, we actually need to defend property uh, and defend the rights of people who have created wealth and own that wealth. Because if you don't defend that, the investment will not be there. And without the investment, you can't create opportunities for a new crop of people who basically want to experience that same mobility that I know I had in my life and most Americans, you know, who are middle age right now experience that. Many did not were not born with the kind of lifestyle that they achieve later in their lives. It's an excellent point. And as we look at what is happening uh, across the, the world right now, and we see the, the disaster uh, that is unfolding in Venezuela and really in some other countries there that are leading to the uh, migration of people to the United States southern border, I know you've written on that extensively. Um, what do you see as some of the major factors that are driving that, those, those migrations, and what uh, would you suggest that we learn about what can be done to help address those issues? Well, in the case of Central America, I think that there are um, at least two, uh, maybe three main problems. The first, I, I think that the war on drugs um, is a problem for Central America because, you know, many years ago, I would say um, – trying to put a date on it, but at some point, perhaps it was in the late 90s or sometime in the 90s, um, the drug enforcement began to crack down very much on drug shipments through the Caribbean. And when that happened, the drug traffickers began to bring the drugs up the Central American Isthmus and in, through Mexico. And that's what changed the dynamics very much about Central America and Mexico. Um, my opinion on the war on drugs is this is a demand problem. It's not a supply problem. As long as you have demand from a rich country like the United States for these drugs, um, the people who can supply them will do whatever they have to do to get them through. And the problem with the prohibition, whether you believe in, you know, legalization or whatever, the point is when you have a lot of demand and you have the prohibition, by definition, all that money goes to organized crime. And it goes into the pockets of criminals. It strengthens organized crime. And this organized crime networks have overwhelmed the law enforcement agencies in uh, Central America and Mexico. So that's one point. Putting that aside, the Central America also has a development problem. It has not developed because it has not... Um, through its political uh, uh, system, been able to basically create an environment that attracts investment. I mean, there should be, these places should be attractive for investment. They're close to the United States market. They have an abundance of labor. Um, you know, there, there's no reason why people shouldn't want to build factories in Central America. And they, they also have uh, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, what we call CAFTA. But, 
uh, as I pointed out in my column on Monday, for example, Honduras has very uh, poor electricity uh, supply. Uh, it's not reliable. It's very expensive. And um, and in- investors don't know, okay, I'm going to build a plant in Central America, but they're not sure if they're going to be able to turn the lights on. There are constant rolling blackouts and so forth. Why? Because although the generation of electricity is some of the generation is in private hands, transmission and distribution are in the hands of the state. And this monopoly has done a very poor job in in its, in doing its job and getting electricity to the end user. And uh, so what's the solution? Well, there has to be competition in that market. And because of crony politics, which, you know, everybody understands, um, they have not made that step to reform the electricity sector. So, you know, the, the war on drugs is part of the problem, but also there's a political problem in these countries whereby, you know, the interests that maintain the monopolies and and don't want uh, open competition uh, are very powerful and they stop development. And there's different examples in uh, those three countries that we call the Northern Triangle. I'll just make one last point, um, which is that the United States is not generally helpful in this matter. Um, we, uh, President Trump talks about aid to Central America and threatens to cut it. But when you actually look at what the aid is, you know, some of it goes to help security initiatives, and those have been helpful. But much of it goes to um, organizations that basically do things like uh, organizing labor and make trying to make labor uh, laws more rigid so that um, you know, the labor is, is, uh, the cost of labor goes up and it's not as attractive, uh, to go there because, uh, and, and, and that's in the interest of U.S. labor. They don't want, um, competitive labor in Central America. So I think we also have to look at where the money goes, um, when it's spent through USAID or NGOs or contractors who say they're supposed to be helping with development, but oftentimes they're getting involved in uh, environmental extremism or, um, you know, these labor matters, which are not helpful to the development of these countries. It, it strikes me that uh, many times we, we see things where uh, policies in the United States are undertaken and either... Um, we get stuck with the law of unintended consequences where perhaps good intentions end up with bad results uh, or perhaps they were um, the intentions weren't quite as good as they were uh, stated to be to start with. Let me um, see if I can turn back to, to something in which you see happening in some of the other uh, countries that you cover and have so much experience and expertise in. Um, we've talked a little bit about Venezuela and what's happening there, and we've had some FAU students who've unfortunately seen uh, these terrible, uh, terrible outcomes there. Can you talk a little bit about Cuba and how things are evolving in Cuba now post, um, post-Fidel Castro and what's happened in the last couple of years and what what you might think uh, or might foresee for the next few years? Well, I'm not terribly optimistic about Cuba, um, although I'm, I also hope that I would be wrong. Um, one thing that's not well understood about this government, which you know is still run by Raul Castro, even though the um, titular head is a, a guy by the name of Miguel Diaz-Canel, but um, 
Uh, it's basically an organized crime syndicate that runs Cuba. And, uh, you know, it's a relatively small island. They uh, learned all of their spying and um, uh, state security uh, techniques from the Stasi in East Germany and from the Soviets. So they know how to do it. I mean, they're very good at it. And um, so basically, if you live on the island, you are um, a hostage to this organization. Um, I think if I were to to try to think about how that might improve. Uh, number one, they will no longer have the funding of Venezuela. I mean, the oil output is uh, dropped significantly. And um, while Venezuela is still sending oil shipments to Cuba, as far as we know, um, it's sort of drying up. So they don't have the gusher that they had, say, 10 years ago. Um, and before that, obviously, they had the Soviets, which they don't have anymore. Um, so if they uh, continue to... Um, be squeezed f- financially, um, that may provide an opening um, for collapse. And I think the importance of that is it would be linked to the fact that Fidel Castro is dead because Fidel Castro had a sort of mythological uh, aura in Cuba. Um, and Raul doesn't have that. Raul is uh, in his late 80s now. So um, he at some point would move off the scene. And most Cubans have very little respect for um, the next generation, um, the people running um, uh, the government right now. Um, so you're seeing more and more um, manifestations in the street and so forth. But it would really come down to, as it will in Venezuela, the military making a decision, somebody, some leader emerging in Cuba to say, you know what, we just, we're not going to do this anymore. And, you know, we talk a lot in economics about incentives, and the incentives are really not there because it's like the owner, the, the, the dictatorship in Cuba is like, um, a master on a slave plantation. They have all these people working for them. So it's hard to figure out what the incentive would be on the part of anybody who would be a reformer to say, I'm going to give up that gravy train and, and make, um, and create a rule of law in Cuba. Uh, not impossible, but, I'm just sort of laying out what the what the barriers to change would be there. I think, the, like I said, the one um, optimistic scenario would be if they basically ran out of money. I mean, the potential for China or Russia to step in there and try to become a supplier again. I don't think Russia doesn't really have the money to uh, prop up Cuba. China has a lot of money, so my sense is that that it's the most likely um, next step. Um, and I think we shouldn't forget that Iran, Cuba is also very close to Iran. So um, there's a potential that this problem uh, in Cuba slash Venezuela uh, will become bigger than what we're seeing right now. One of the things that's become particularly apparent to me since moving to uh, Florida Atlantic University almost six years ago is the upside, if you will, for the United States of all of the Cuban immigrants who came here fleeing Castro. And it's the, the upside for us, particularly here in South Florida, where so many of our uh, prominent alumni from FAU are Cuban immigrants, and so many people across South Florida are also Cuban immigrants. So a lot of the talent came here, and that talent combined with the opportunities that were available 
in America led to this flourishing, but it also was the drain of that talent from Cuba. And so that's, you know, that also leaves them worse off in a way in this sort of selection kind of thing where the people who then did advance in Cuba were people who, if you will, had a relative and and uh, advantage in political connections and doing that sort of thing. So you don't see the same kind of entrepreneurial energy, which is squashed by that system, but also the people that might have had the most talent to help lead that uh, escaped yeah. and left or were put in jail. Yeah, I mean, I think Hayek in uh, in Road to... I think it's in Road to Serfdom, uh, has a chapter called Why the Worst Rise to the Top. And um, uh, I think that's exactly what you're describing in Cuba. I mean, you know, the worst rose to the top and um, the best basically fled. And this is a constant problem for the region. I mean, the United States is just jam-packed with human capital that uh, has been a gift to us because uh, of these tyrannies uh, south of the border. Um, yeah, I'll slip in one of one of those people is a fellow named Manny Medina, and he came here. He's told me the story of coming here uh, with his mom as a teenager, and now he's started a couple of different companies. Uh, his current one is called Six Terra, and he's being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the South Florida Business Journal in a couple of weeks. And so he came here to FAU, got a degree in accounting, literally starts with with nothing, and now has built. The first one company, Terramark, that was sold for about $2 billion and now is on his second venture. And he's been tremendously influential with his family, particularly his daughter, Melissa, in starting the Emerge Americas uh, conference and really helping with many others, helping Miami rise uh, to be a technology center, an entrepreneurship center here for South Florida, but for all of the Americas. And that's an incredible story. And it's not at all unique. I mean, Manny is an incredibly talented man, but it's that opportunity that was available here in Florida and here in America. And in part, I'll plug my own university through the public university system that is relatively inexpensive and affordable uh, for people, doesn't leave them saddled with huge debt, but gets them started. So yeah. it's, a, it's a phenomenal part, I think, of that American dream. And I'm pleased to say it's still alive and, uh, and well uh, here and across much of the country, despite many people claiming it's dead and you can't get ahead, I don't think they're seeing what's right in front of their eyes. Right. And I have uh, some um, experiences with Cubans uh, who uh, came to South Florida and, um, you know, personal friends and people I know through the paper who have similar stories. So that's very motivating. But there's something you said that I, I think is worth uh, stressing, which is that, um, you know, when people come to this country, particularly from Cuba and, and prior to 1960, the people who came sort of in the aftermath of the, um, of the Cuban revolution, many of them had the, um, sort of had inculcated already the ideas of a free society because, you know, Cuba had its problems in the 1950s, but it was basically, it was the third most wealthy country in Latin America. And it had a very relatively advanced economy. Um, it had, you know, bar associations. It had a free press. It had institutions. And so many of those people who came here from that environment understood the civic um, civics. They understood institutions. They understood personal responsibility and all of those things. People, uh, some of the migrants who come now don't live in that environment. And um, 
and some of them have, I mean, obviously anyone who's a migrant is a risk taker, um, and that's a real advantage for us. But I think it reinforces, knowing where they're coming from, it reinforces the importance and the responsibility on our part to, pr- to make sure that people understand that ideas matter and, and that we fight for our ideas in the public square because people, there, there's another set of ideas that says, you know, the state can provide for you, um, you know, uneven profit, profit making is, is, uh, is immoral, um, you know, too much property. Okay. You can have some, but you can't have too much. All of those ideas are also in the public square. And, you know, what started the problem, a lot of the problems in Latin America is that you have politicians ginning up sort of the feeling of envy among people, you know. So we have to fight for the idea that the the, the moral ideas are that the ownership is a, a, a moral institution, private property is a moral institution, and that it helps in the end with creating wealth. I mean, you can't have, you can't help the poor if you don't create wealth. And I find that the socialist idea is that let's just skip the idea about creating wealth. We have a lot of wealth. Look around you. It's very rich. So all we have to do is redistribute it. <laughs> and that is really the downfall of many of a country is that the wealth is there, I mean, particularly in Venezuela. The wealth was seen as the oil. We have the oil. We're rich. The only problem we have is that it hasn't been distributed equally or in a in a just manner. And so that's what this politician will promise. And of course, what we have to work on is wealth creation. You can't get wealth creation without investment, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, and profits. That's a, uh, it, it's a great point. And I think a focus on really the moral foundations of capitalism and the moral foundations of the free enterprise system uh, is really a neglected area and one we're going to return to uh, with some other folks at a later time. Uh, I really appreciate your time today, Mary. Thank you for being here. You're going to be speaking to a class a little bit later. Uh, These ideas are important. And for those of you that are out there listening, remember you can read Mary Anastasia O'Grady's column on the Americas in the Wall Street Journal. Journal. And uh, I do, and I've learned a lot, and I'll look forward to learning more. Mary, it's Thank a pleasure you. to have you here. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. To learn more about our activities and upcoming events, please see our College of Business website, business.fau.edu. Dean Gropper Presents is part of the FAU College of Business Podcast Network. To learn more, visit us at business.fau.edu forward slash podcasts and follow Dean Gropper on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.